three political insurrectionists were to die. Their crosses were prepared and the execution time was set. But suddenly, their leader Barabbas was released and a poor Galilean rabbi was crucified in his place. Pilate insisted he was innocent. Everyone knew that he had done nothing worthy of death, but in the midst of two thieves, he died. Why? How do you answer the question, why the cross? We want to talk about why the cross today. And I want you to realize that whether it's in Qatar or whether it's right here in Midlothian, as you go out into the public this next week, it's one of the prime weeks that we have to be able to share Christ. We're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. I want to talk to you about four major climactic times in Matthew's presentation of the cross. The first one is, his blood be on us and on our children. It comes at the end of the Roman trial. And, in, interesting enough, probably since about 400, 500 A.D., so for hundreds of years now, that phrase, his blood be on us and on our children, has been one of the key phrases that has been used to fuel anti-Jewish hostility. And it's the cry of the Jewish crowd. as the Pilate says, well, I'm not guilty of it. He watches his hands and says, you see to it. And he hands you this order to be crucified. The Jewish crowd hollers out, his blood be on us and on our children. And that's been used in a horrific way by people that hate the Jewish people to say, you Jewish people deserve to be beat up. You deserve to be punished because you're guilty of the blood of Jesus. What we want to do this morning is we want to go back and see why Matthew included that. We need to ask some questions. If you go to a, in a college classroom, you're going to have college professors say, here it is, anti-Semitism, and the New Testament is riddled with it. Well, one of the things you need to do is don't listen to what your professors say. In fact, I wouldn't challenge you, don't even listen to what I say, but read the text for yourself, and all I can do this morning is begin to whet your appetite to do that. Open your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 11. We're going to look, first of all, this morning, I take a snapshot of the Roman trial. Last week, we looked at the Jewish trial. We have the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas, and all of his co-patriots. They gather together. All night long, they have this hearing. Then they take Jesus before the Roman governor as the sun begins to rise. The early Roman judges, the governors of the territory, would rise early in the morning. They try to get their work done before the early afternoon. And because it's the Passover holiday, the Jewish high priests are very concerned to get this matter of Jesus taken care of. And so that's where Matthew picks up the story in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. That would be before Pilate. And, governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? One of Matthew's major points that he wants you to understand in his entire book is Jesus is the king of the Jews. It's decision time. We began with the book and early in the, in, the, in the nativity narratives with Herod the Great all upset because there's a little baby that's been born in Bethlehem who the wise men have seen his star in the east and they've come to worship the man who is going to be the king of the Jews. The baby that's the king of the Jews is now going to be worshipped at the beginning of the book by the wise men. We're going to end the book with the question raised again. Jesus is standing before the Roman leader of his day, and the question is, are you the king of the Jews? It's the big question today. 
Your culture wants to say, no, he isn't. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's the king of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. He's the king of what we call wasps that were raised on the East Coast of the United States. He's the king of the Puritans. And he's the king of Texans who live in the Bible Belt. And on and on it goes. But the biggest question you need to ask yourself, is Jesus the king of the Jews? And that's a loaded phrase because the idea in the word of God is that whoever is the king of the Jews ultimately is going to be the king of the world and ultimately going to be the king of the universe. And this is the key question you have to decide. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he the king of the Jews? It's a good way to get out whether you worship the biblical Jesus or whether you worship just the Jesus that's a figment of religious imagination. The real Jesus, the big question is, are you the king of the Jews? How did Jesus respond to that? Matthew asked Jesus, reply, yes, it is as you say. Jesus claims he's Jewish himself. He claims to be the king of the Jews. Now, if he is the king of the Jews, that raises a question, what kind of a king is he going to be? What kind of a ruler is he going to be? Every one of you this morning has a king in your life. Every one of you are being guided by somebody. Every one of you are listening to someone. Every one of you are under the authority of someone. If you're, if you're totally rebelling against your parents and you're running with a fast crowd, I guarantee that there's a king over your fast crowd or a queen that's over your fast crowd and they control what you do. If you're in a motorcycle club, if you're a member of a motorcycle club, there's a king over your club, and he controls what you eat, what you, what you wear, where you go on your club. Every one of you has a king. My king today is King Jesus. What about your king? Every one of you has a king. And what we're going to see in this passage is it's this issue of rulership. It's the issue of who's going to control our life. And Jesus says, I'm the king. But what kind of a king is he? When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Remember we learned last week how one of the things that shows you a wise man and an, and an innocent man is the one that's not so quick to defend themselves. And Jesus is showing you one of the things he said earlier in his life is that when you, blessed are those who when they're persecuted for righteousness', righteousness sake, they don't retaliate. In the Sermon on the Mount, our king showed us the way we relate to people. And we learn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those when they're insulted, when they're persecuted, when they're attacked for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those. And Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek and going a second mile and all that kind of stuff that we in our natural state say it's crazy. We think that that's weakness and that'll mean we'll get rolled over. Jesus is showing us in the ultimate challenge of life how he lives out those principles. And that's what he's showing us here. Pilate's attacking him, and Jesus is silent. Very much like the Jewish trial is that when the Jewish leaders attack Jesus and accuse him, he's silent before them. He's the one that's in control. It says, then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom. Now, Matthew introduces us. Pilate beginning to figure out how he can get through this. And this is what a lot of people that you meet, Oregon, when they're faced with a challenge in life, they're faced with what's going on, they try to weasel their way and figure out a way to be able to get where they need to get. Pilate is an example of, of, a, of a secular ruler that knows how to play the game. He knows how to try to work things to get what he wants. I want you to feel what Pilate's doing. Because it's very possible that this week you're going to get into a situation like Pilate. You're going to get into a situation where you know what's right, you know what you need to do, but there's key powerful people that want to do something else that you know is wrong, 
There's also a crowd of people around them that are pushing you to do the wrong thing. And you know in your heart what you need to do is just be straightforward and upfront and just say, no, this person is innocent. This is not the way we should do it. We need to do so and so and so and so and so and so. But instead, a whole bunch of us will be like Pilate. In fact, as you go through this story, one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants you to do is to open your heart so you'll see some of the Pilate that's in you, and I want to see some of the Pilate that's in me, because this is what's going to help us to turn to Jesus, who's the only one in this story that doesn't act in this unjust, illicit way. And as you go out into the world, what Matthew's telling us about is exactly the way the world is. Pilate knows what he ought to do. He knows even when the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before him. Jesus was a very public figure. Uh, he was probably already known to the Roman governor because of the great movements in Galilee, great movements in Judea. You don't have a miracle worker like Jesus. Herod, Antipas, who in the other gospel narratives, it talks about Jesus going before the, uh, the other, not Herod the Great, but his son, Herod Antipas. And Herod wants Jesus to be like a great magician, do a trick before him. So Herod knows about Jesus' reputation. You can bet that Pilate knew as well. So Pilate's trying to figure out a way to let him go. How does he do that? Well, he's got a notorious insurrectionist. The word that's used is the word that's used not just for a common thief, although it could be used for that, but in this context, when we put together the witness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Barabbas, by the way, Barabbas means the son of the father. And he's also, in some of the textual, um, some of the textual variants that we have, it's very possible that there's good evidence that his name is Jesus Barabbas. One of the things that Matthew's presenting to you is you have two Jesuses, and both of them are the son of the father. Bar Abba in Aramaic means Bar means son, Abba means father. Barabbas' name means the son of the father. And ironically, you need to decide who the real son of the father is. In fact, all the way through this text, Matthew loves irony. If some of you like skillful writing, and you need to read Matthew, because Matthew's an incredible writer. Because all the way through this story, what you think is true, isn't really true, and what is being rejected is really true. Because Barabbas, his very name, means he's the son of the father, and he's a very powerful political figure. You think of him as being a common thief. Some of you might have even heard Matthews about how Jesus was killed between two thieves, but you need to understand in the context of the first century. In the Jewish first century, under Roman domination, there were very powerful insurrectionists. They were powerful political leaders that would rise up among the people. Things were relatively quiet during Jesus' lifetime. In 6 AD, there was a powerful Jewish false messiah that rose up. The Romans crushed him, destroyed him, and things were relatively quiet. They simmered. There's a few local uprisings that are quickly put down. There's some anti-Roman activities up in Samaria. We find Pilate attacking at Mount Gerasim, a whole bunch of Samaritans, and killing them. In fact, that's eventually what gets him removed in 36 AD from his post as governor. So I want you to feel that you're in a land kind of like Iraq today, where you have all this, the Shiites and the Sunnis and everybody vying for power. You have these extreme Islamic groups. If you just make that Jewish, you'll have the same, you'll have a great understanding of what's going on. Barabbas was one of these popular leaders, and he was captured by the Romans. Probably the two men as well that were crucified uh, with Jesus were probably his co-patriots. And so what they are is they are popular figures. They're like, you know, the, 
Like in Mel Gibson's film where, where he played the, the Scotsman that rose up. Remember that? And he was the great powerful ruler and eventually became a martyr. That kind of a man that Barabbas is. Only instead of the English attacking Wallace, you have, in this case, you have the Romans that want to take him down. You'll look at it a little bit differently. You'll understand some of the movement of the crowd. Pilate misjudges the crowd. What he wants to do is give them a choice. Is it going to be Jesus, Barabbas, Jesus, the son of the father, or Jesus, the son of the father, who's of Galilee? Is it going to be the Jesus that we worship and we adore? Is it going to be this political leader? You're all going to have to decide that. You're going to decide in your own life who you're going to follow. Some of you this morning are following big, powerful business leaders, people that are going to rise up and we're going to conquer the world by what we do in business. And, and some of you are going to follow. You might even, as you grow older, if, if, there's, if there's major upheavals in our country, some of you might even face the very similar thing that Jewish people were facing. Should we join with the political insurrection? Is that going to be the way we change the world? That's what Matthew wants you to feel in this account. We've got a choice. Are you going to follow this Barabbas? who's going to promise us we're going to conquer the Romans, we're going to rise up, or are you going to follow Jesus? Are we going to follow this man that looks like he's not doing anything, it looks like he's passive, it looks like he's weak? And every one of us have to decide. Matthew is challenging us. You decide. Who do you believe has the real power? Who do you believe has the real influence? How are you really going to get things done in the world? Those are the questions I have to ask myself. So it says that Pilate had a custom that uh, during the feast time he'd release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Now if Pilate knew that it was according to envy that Jesus had been handed over to them, then what should he do with Jesus? Tell me, what should he do with Jesus? He should what? He should release him. That's what Matthew wants you to feel. And I want you also to feel the power of envy in your own life and in my life. One of the things that happens when you see somebody in your work start having more influence than you do, they get the position that you thought you should have. It happens in church work. As the church is developing and new people come along and you see people with abilities and they start to have influence and they start to have recognition and you, maybe you've had that recognition all along. You know what starts to happen? You know what happens to Dave Wurtzen? I get green. So do you. Every one of you needs to ask yourself this morning because Pilate's in Dave Wurtzen's heart and it's in your heart. You get jealous. One of this happens to whole church families. The normal thing is church families begin to develop. You have a church family developing. There's usually core leaders that give birth to that church family. They father it. They guide it. But as it begins to grow, as it begins to develop, you have new people come in. I had a friend of mine that pastored a new church in North Carolina. He went to the church. The church was maybe about 250 when he went there. He was a powerful evangelist. The thing started exploding. They started growing to 600, 700, 800. Hundreds of people were coming to know Jesus as their Savior. The fathers of the church family, though, that were the original fathers, you know what they decided to do? They got together and they said, man, this is awesome. This is great. We're growing as a church family. We want to make room for all kinds of new, younger people to get involved. That's not what they did. They got my friend and they axed him. They fired him. He said, oh, no, that would never happen. Oh, yeah. Say, why would that happen? Jealousy. Jealousy. The priesthood see Jesus. He's starting to get a popular hold over the people. 
People used to respond to them. They used to be the ones that had the influence and they're trying to guard themselves. And this young upstart Galilean who's from the other side of the track is now getting all these people's acclaim and, and they heard him on Palm Sunday. They heard the crowd say, Hosanna to the son of David. And they couldn't stand it. And every one of you need to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself today, what about jealousy in my own heart? Brothers and sisters, as I think back over years of the ministry, jealousy and envy is one of the most powerful things to hurt people in families, in church families, in business, in schools. And Pilate knows that the only reason Jesus is standing before him is because of jealousy. And what he should have done is he should have said in that courtroom, he should have said to the high priest, he said, Caiaphas, you're green with envy. You are jealous of this humble simple man and you're afraid and as the Roman that's in charge here I need to stand against your manipulation and against your envy and I need to set this man free you know what most of you won't do that you'll sit in meetings you'll see jealousy begin to take a hold you'll see envy begin to hold someone down you'll happen in your business this week it'll happen in your own family you need to bless them. As a daddy, for example, you know, I just suddenly get the word, my son Josh has been accepted at Yale Graduate School. As a daddy, my normal response is going to be, oh, that's wonderful, you know, isn't this awesome? Praise the Lord, and I'm, I'm proud of him. But you know what some daddies do? Some daddies say, you can't ever do that. You're that stupid kid that, you know, was going to be a street person your junior year in high school. What makes you think you could ever, you could ever make it at, a, at an Ivy League school? You know what that is, daddies? You know what keeps you from blessing your sons? You're jealous. And you'll tear a young person's heart out. One of the things that young people need, as my boys begin to mature and develop, one of the most important things they need is they need their daddy to look them right in the eye and to bless them and to tell them you can do it and I'm proud of you and I'm proud that you can stand and go much farther than I ever dreamt of going. Jealousy is the thing that keeps us from blessing and it makes us hurt in some of the deepest ways. What are some of the ways that you're jealous? Jealous is like anger. Jealousy is like anger. It sneaks up on you. It just kind of sits there. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do, I want you to open your heart and let your Holy, the Holy Spirit remove jealousy from your heart so you, as you're growing older, you become an open person that can bless others. You're not threatened by them. But I also want you to be a person that when you sit in school meetings, when you sit in business meetings, when you sit in family meetings, when you see the green monster of jealousy, I want you to stand against it. I want you to call it out. I want you to not play with it like Pilate did. Because innocent people are murdered and destroyed because of jealousy. Pilate, this Roman political leader, knows in his heart the only thing that's going on here is green jealousy. But he doesn't do anything about it. Look what he does. It says while he was doing, it says where he knew it was because of envy they handed Jesus over. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him his message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Early in the book... Joseph, the earthly adopted father of Jesus, gets a dream from God. 
and is protected and, and follows the dream and marries Mary and has another dream and he takes Jesus down into Egypt. Matthew wants you to realize that God is speaking through this dream. And the day before the word of God was completed, it was a very common way for God to reveal himself. And so this pagan woman, this pagan Roman wife, has received revelation from the Lord about who Jesus is. He's an innocent man. So heaven has declared this man is innocent. But Pilate won't listen. It says, but the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And which, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. And they said, Barabbas, they answered. And what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? And they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting... He decided that he would stand up like a man and he would be strong and he would resist envy and he would resist this manipulation. And he would stand against this mob violence and he released Jesus and set him free. How many of you read that? That's not the world you live in. It's not the world that I live in. A whole bunch of young people come to me and say, man, I, you know, why should I believe in God? You know, screw up, screwed up things happen. Evil things happen. The innocent people get condemned and the guilty people they get, they rule and they reign. Some of you are angry because life hasn't worked out very fair. You need to look carefully at this text. What really happens? What happens in a real world? What happens in real courtrooms? The what, how do things go? This is the worst travesty. What, what is Matthew shouting at you? Matthew's shouting at you. This man is innocent. This man is innocent. This man is innocent. This man is the king of kings. This man is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's the Lord. Every one of you know that in your heart, but what's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to him? And I want you to see the manipulation that you're going to face in the world. Pilate takes out a bowl of water. There's a custom in Roman culture. There's also a custom in Jewish culture that you can take water, you wash your hands, and you're going to be innocent. So Pilate says he, gets, he saw that he was getting nowhere, so he took out a basin of water. He washed his hand from the crowd, and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the people cried out, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The horror of that flogging. What's going on here? It's what the world will always do. The world will always choose Barabbas. The world chooses the man that flexes his muscles. The world chooses the man who resists the Roman Empire. The man chooses the great hero. They don't choose the man who's silent, who says, Father, forgive them, for they know what they do. And every one of you in your heart is going to need to decide, how do I really have power? Husbands, you need to decide, how are you going to have influence in your family? Some of you try to have influence. You shout, you yell. You're going to be strong. You're going to be the leader. You put your foot down. I'm the head of this home. You're not. You see, you have to decide, how do you lead? As a pastor, teacher, you have to decide, how do you lead in a church? How do you guide? Jesus is showing how you lead. He's not weak. doesn't mean that you're not strong. Jesus is the strongest man I've ever, ever been exposed to by, by infinity. But Jesus is showing how you really leave. How you really conquer evil. How do, you, how do you defeat it? And Jesus is showing how you defeat it. Barabbas is not the one that conquered the Roman Empire. Barabbas devoted his entire life to defeating the Romans. And his ilk, in just 30 years after the time of Jesus, in 67 AD, Jewish insurrectionists are going to rise up and they're going to try to pull 
like Wallace tried to set Scotland free, they're going to try to set Palestine free. And from 67 until 72 AD, for five years, they're going to try to beat the Romans. And at 72 AD at Masada, Silva, the Roman general, is going to march his legions up a ramp they built at Masada. And he's going to go bust through a wall. And Eliezer and all the Jews, children, women, are all going to be dead. They committed suicide. And the Jewish revolt is put down. They didn't conquer the Romans. But this humble savior, this humble man, Jesus, that looked like he was so weak, looked like he was so impotent, was the man who was so strong. And the phrase, his blood be on us and on our children, is a phrase that you should never leave out. Because Matthew is filled with irony. The Jewish crowd was hollering out, Pilate, don't worry about it. His blood's going to be on us and on our children. What they meant by it, in their Jewish circles, what it meant is we'll take responsibility. What they were sharing is we're the ones that decided we'll take responsibility for it. That's what it meant, his blood be on us. Had it be used in an anti-Semitic way? Yes. Is that legitimate? No. In other words, in the very next verse, Roman Gentiles take Jesus. You've all seen it in the Passion. They put metal chips and bone chips in leather thongs, and they tear the back of Jesus, the smithereens. They punch him in the face. They, they mar him, like Isaiah says, so he was beyond recognition. How many of you have ever heard, all Gentiles are cursed, and all Gentiles deserve to die because the Romans scourged Jesus and then crucified him? So why do we do that with a Jewish hierarchy and extrapolate, generalize to the entire nation that all Jews deserve to die like Hitler did? You see how illegitimate that is? What Matthew's telling us is reality. There was an aristocracy of Jewish leaders in Judea in the first century that were filled with jealousy. They acted like religious leaders usually do. They tried to protect their temple. They tried to protect their holy place. They tried to protect their law. This upstart false prophet they believed was rising up, attacking their movement. They did what religious people always do. And like I've taught you all along through this, if, if, if their presuppositions were right, if Jesus was not really the Messiah, if Jesus was a false prophet from Galilee, then according to Deuteronomy, he should die. He should be taken out. And all the people, like when they shout out, his blood be on us and on our children. What Deuteronomy says, if you have a false prophet in your midst and he gives false prophecy, the, the entire court hearing needed to take place and then the entire nation needed to go out and they needed to stone him. And they all took responsibility to snuff out this false prophet. Matthew knows that, that Deuteronomic sentence and the way it should be carried out. But here's the irony. Here's the irony. His blood be on us and on our children. The Jews were saying, we'll take responsibility for this. But Matthew wants you to know that his blood needs to be on every one of us. His blood needs to be on all of our children. Not in the sense that we murder Jesus, but in the sense that his blood is upon us. It covers us. See, what Matthew wants you to realize, the horrible phrase that was taken out and has been used in anti-Semiticism, his blood being on us and our children, one of Satan's biggest lies is that phrase has become a rallying call to kill Jews. When Matthew means for it to be a call that causes all of us to get flat on our faces, 
and let the blood of Jesus flow over our sinful life, flow over our envy, flow over our manipulation, flow over our inability, our weakness to really stand against evil, to flow over our indecision, to flow over the pilot in us, to flow over the Caiaphas in us. His blood be upon us. The irony of what Matthew's saying is, because this Savior rising again from the dead, if you let Jesus' blood be on us, then you're going to be healed. Because Peter that denied the Lord in the paragraph before this wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It's by his wounds that we are healed. For you are all like sheep growing astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd of your soul. In the next section, I want to challenge you as you're reading through this narrative this week. Let me just close by giving you some of the other ironies in this passage. And all I could do is kind of introduce you to the idea, but I want you to think of the irony is let his blood be on us and on our children. Matthew wants you to feel the irony. If you let his blood be upon you, if you let him wash you by his blood, and if you create your families based upon that self-sacrifice of Jesus, then rather than be con- being condemned in death and the curse, you'll be set free. Later on in this passage, at the crucial point, of the crucifixion narrative. They mock Jesus and they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And Matthew wants you to feel the irony. His enemies are crying out, he saved others. He was able to give sight to the blind. He was able to raise dead people. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And the truth of the matter is that's true. That's really true. Not the way that the Jewish curse meant, but Jesus can save others. And the reason he can save others is that he chose not to save himself. He's the great shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus' enemies, as they cursed them, were saying the truth. He couldn't save himself. He had to hang there for you. Because he's the only one that's innocent in this whole story. He's the only one that's that's the sheep that's pure. He's the only one that doesn't deserve to die. He's the only one that has to lay himself down. And he can save others because he didn't choose to save himself. In the middle of the cross, at at the climactic moment, he hollers out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the climactic moment for Matthew. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? If you reject Jesus, you should cheer. If you don't believe Jesus is the truth, you should say amen. He is forsaken. His enemies listen to those words, and they're just saying there, that proves what we said is true. And Matthew wants you to feel the irony. Your Savior hollered out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? One of Janae's professors got right in her face in his office. and said, you mean to tell me you believe in, in this awful God who we're born with original sin? You mean he's going to burn us all in hell forever and ever and ever and he's so mean? And Janae said, no. God didn't create hell because he wants people to be separated from him. He created hell because he gave you freedom. He created choice. You can walk away from him. You don't have to receive Jesus this morning. You can forsake him. You can turn away from God. This professor was saying, what about the amoeba? Janae says, what about the amoeba? She said, well, that's where we came from. We came from amoebas. And God gives this brilliant English professor at UT the right to believe he came from amoebas. Janae says, I believe I came from the dust of the ground, that a personal daddy in heaven created a beautiful statue and 
created a man, created a woman, and I believe I have infinite, eternal worth because I'm made in his image. You can believe you came from an amoeba. All of you have that choice. And Jesus hollered out, like, the question that that professor was raising, how could there ever be a good God when there's such a horrible hell? The question you need to face this morning is, God gave his son, and he hollered out, forsaken, forsaken, forsaken. You know why Jesus hollered out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? So that none of you would ever have to holler it out. Do you feel that this morning? Do you realize there's not any reason in the world for any human being to ever holler out, God, God, why has thou forsaken me? Because God lifted his son up and let his son be forsaken. Let his son be abandoned. Some of you feel forsaken. Some of you feel abandoned. That's a trick of the evil one. Because Jesus took all the abandonment. He took all the forsakenness. And when he hollered out that dark afternoon at Calvary, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by his daddy in heaven so that you never would have to be forsaken. Jesus took your sin. He took all the darkness upon himself so that you could have light and so you could have life. The final phrase, surely he was the son of God. The passage closes with a Roman soldier When Jesus dies and breathes at his last, Matthew tells us a foretaste of what we're going to look at next week on Easter Sunday. He gives us a foretaste of the resurrection. And when Jesus died, suddenly the graves opened up. Righteous Old Testament men and women that had loved God suddenly came to life as a foretaste of the resurrection. And they appeared to different people in the city of Jerusalem. and say, Dave, what's going on there? Matthew wants you to know, it looks like when Jesus breathed at his last, that death is won. But it's the death of Jesus that opens the graves. It's the death of Jesus that causes us to realize that Jesus is the real Son of God. Remember I started the message saying you have to make a choice? Jesus Barabbas, the insurrectionist, or Jesus, the Messiah. And Matthew develops his argument. Pilate finagles Roman justice, doesn't do anything better than Jewish justice. The Jewish high priests carry out their envious scheme. Jesus is hung on the cross. Barabbas is set free. And it looks like in this story, the political insurrectionist, the human hero, has won. Barabbas goes out among the cheering crowds. But Matthew wants you to know who really is the son of the father. Who really is Bar Abba, son of the ultimate daddy. And a Roman soldier, when he looks at Jesus dying on the cross and sees him breathe at his last, and then he feels the earthquake. God shakes the entire earth when his son dies. Because this is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. The dividing line of your life and the dividing line of my life is who do I believe is the son of God. I want to challenge every one of you to go out this week to realize that you have a savior who is unlike any other human hero you'll ever be exposed to. And the more you open your heart to him, the more he'll expose what reality is, what's really going on in our life. And I pray that you'll be able to hear what Matthew's saying. I pray that you'll feel the incredible irony and that you'll say, his blood is upon me. I'm forgiven. I will never, never, never have to face destruction because he didn't save himself. He saved me. I'm never going to be forsaken by the Father because Jesus yelled out that day, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? And we're going to all get down on our knees on this Hosanna in the highest Sunday 
we're going to get down on our knees and we're going to say, Jesus, truly you are Bar Abba, the son of the ultimate daddy in heaven. And because you are, and because I've joined you and I trust you, I'm going to be one of God's children forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Peter's words. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the trees so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For we were all like sheep that have gone astray, but now we've returned, each one of us, to the shepherd, to the overseer of our souls. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help many, many of our friends to return to the great shepherd, the great overseer of their souls. I want to ask you, Lord, that you would take what we've learned today about Matthew's irony, the incredible, powerful way that he told the story of Calvary. And I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help us to go out now into our offices and with our friends at school. And I pray that you would give us courage to give a good confession of our faith. Father, we rejoice that whether it's Qatar in the middle of the Middle East or whether it's Midlothian, deep in the heart of Texas, that Jesus is the one that really conquers, that Jesus is the one that reigns. And I want to ask you, Lord, that you would help him to reign in my life and in my brothers' and sisters' life today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.